moment to pray. Father in heaven, as Linda said, thank you for sending Jesus. And Lord, we need you now. We needed you five seconds ago. We needed you five years ago. We needed you five decades ago. And we need you now, and we need you forever. So Lord, I pray, please help us to recognize that we need you and to seek your face. Lord, because there's a lot in our lives that can be used for distraction, but is but you want to use for our good and for your glory and for us, us to worship you. And Lord, we, we often have a hard time doing that. And we need your Holy Spirit to work in us, to give us eyes to see, to give us ears to hear what you have for us, what you're doing, and how we can be a part of what you're doing. Lord, as we open your word this morning, I pray that you would work by your Holy Spirit because I have nothing to offer these people and I have nothing to offer myself. It has to be you. It must be you, Lord. We need you to speak. We need you because we want to hear your voice and we want to be led by you, the Good Shepherd. So please come. Please fill us. Fill us to overflowing that we could, in turn, encourage one another and encourage those who aren't here, those who are going through very difficult times, those who are going through the, just the daily grind, the daily frustrations. But Lord, thank you that you are greater. And I pray that we would see that today. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Ready to go this morning? Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. So if you would, please grab one. And it sounds obvious, but we're in the Christmas season. We're in Advent. How many people feel it? Is anybody there? Like, yes, Christmas! They're running around singing the VeggieTales song, I Can't Believe It's Christmas. No? Anybody? Anybody? Okay, maybe there's like a couple nods because you don't want to raise your hand because you're an introvert. But I'm not there yet. I don't know if you're not there yet either. But what's interesting is that Christmas in our in this country seems to start in September. And, and well, some stores wait till after Halloween, but a lot of stores don't. And then about halfway through um, our day of giving thanks in November, stores open up to make sure that for Christmas, you can blow your budget so that they can make theirs. We, got, we, have, we have three new holidays. We have Black Friday, we have Cyber Weekend, and Cyber Monday. And probably some others. So, are you ready for Christmas? What about family? I mean, it's family gatherings where, truth of the 
truth of the matter is, it's not the rosy Norman Walkwell picture we hoped for. Usually, families, usually holidays tend to bring out the uh, the uncle that nobody likes, or just stirring the pot about because you're all together again. And sometimes the saying gets true: is familiarity breeds contempt. And the, okay, so not ready to family yet. Well, okay, what about like all the activities we could do? The holiday festivals, the school parties, the breaks. Those are good. And then there's tons and tons and tons and tons of them. And then we go, 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 and we screech to a halt on the big day. And then what happens on the big day? We gorge ourselves in cookies before giving, getting out of our pajamas. And then head head to the great gift exchange at the grandparents, which mostly means that kids tear into the packages like ravenous hyenas over a carcass of a gazelle. While the rest of us eat our fourth helping of little smokies and sip our sparkling sparkling cider. And then we take take pictures on our smartphone like we're on safari. Look at them tear into that. And then everybody goes to bed. And then for the next month, the new toys are discarded for the boxes that they came in. And the cycle repeats year after year after year. Okay, that, that's a little bit of a cynical outlook. Okay, there's some great things in there. Don't get me wrong. And I don't know yet if in Nebraska there are Christmas distinctives that avoid that. But doesn't that seem how Christmas is, but not how it ought to be? I mean, the picture I described, for a lot of people in our world, in our country, that's the essence of Christmas. It's sentimentality. It's, it's all about just getting together for materialism. So this morning, we're going through a series in the book of Isaiah. And this should be your tip-off, is that we, as a people, during the Christmas season, are going through a book. A really old book of Isaiah that talks about the essence of Christmas, what it really is. The series is called, His Name Shall Be Called. That means there's someone and there's a name and that means something. And that means something for our Christmas. That means something for our lives. You see, in Isaiah's time, in some ways, it's not much different from ours. God had provided the nation, ancient nation of Israel land to cultivate, power, prestige. They were a world player. And even with the civil war that split the northern kingdom from the southern kingdom, Judah and Israel were still formidable groups. But they were fulfilling the warning that God had given to Moses before they inherited the land they enjoyed and would soon be taken away. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, 
with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And because in Isaiah's time they were forgetting the Lord, they were functionally taking Christ out of Christmas for them. And this is the pattern of humanity that's been going on since the beginning. Mankind, who has given an unbelievable blessing, the creation to enjoy, chooses to disbelieve the blesser, and thus sin enters the world and breaks the blessing and makes it almost meaningless. So in Israel and in our day, there is darkness because of rejecting God. And our gods of packages, boxes, and bags, feasts of food, picturesque family, a restful holiday season, all of them, as you may be experiencing, will not ultimately satisfy. Good things though they might be. If that's where our hope is in those things, we're really just numbing the pain. We're really just trying to avoid facing reality that those will not ultimately satisfy. According to Scripture, we're doomed if we stay in darkness. And across the whole of human history, and particularly shown in Scripture, we can't get ourselves out. So what is it we need? Who is it that we need? Light has to come. God has to come. So would you stand with me as we read God's word this morning? Hopefully you're there. Isaiah chapter 9. Beginning in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this have a seat. 
This morning we're going to be looking at the second name given to this Messiah, the one who saves. And the second title God gives Isaiah about who this Messiah is, when we covered the last one last week, Wonderful Counselor, this week it is Mighty God. And this Messiah, for us who are here today, has been revealed to us. His name is Jesus. Now, of all the claims that can be said about Jesus, Mighty God is the one that makes people squirm the most. Everyone, mostly, is okay with Jesus being a wonderful counselor. I think people are okay that he, and most people, and some people think he was a good moral teacher. And people are okay with one who brings, pursues peace. He's called Prince of Peace, and we'll study that later. They might not like the prince part, but peace, we could use a little more people seeking peace. And being a father figure, we're going to study Everlasting Father next week with the kids program as well. Everyone could use a father figure who is a good moral teacher and a man of peace. But when we make the claim that Jesus is mighty God, and that we're accountable to him, and that the whole reason we have a word called Christmas is because of him, people squirm. I mean, it's not politically correct. And it doesn't fit the categories of a world that, be- that believes that no one's God has the corner on things, or at least not theirs, mine might. Or that any religion's God is actually mighty. And what might trip them up the most, in fact, what tripped up the Jews in Jesus' day the most, is that God displays his mightiness in the most unmighty way. So one of the questions, there's two questions we need to ask and answer today. One, do our lives have any more meaning because Jesus is mighty God? And does Jesus even fit that description? Can we actually get from the child Isaiah prophesied about 700 years before Jesus' birth? who was called mighty who is supposed to be called mighty god can we get from him to carpenter turned rabbi crucified on a roman cross and say that they're the one and the same and does that not merely change our christmases but does that change our lives so let's look at the life of jesus this morning how did he live Jesus is mighty God by how he lived. John wrote in his gospel, now at the end of it, and said, Now there are many, also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. I don't think he was exaggerating if you read just what is given in the gospel accounts. And we don't have time to cover all of them today. I mean, aside from Jesus healing the sick giving sight to the blind, casting out demons, causing the lame to walk, turning water into wine, and on and on and on. There's two instances 
that I think drive home that in terms of deeds, in terms of life, Jesus is mighty God. So the first one, and you can turn there if you'd like. I'm just going to read them. This first one comes from Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go across to the other side. And they were by a, by an ocean, by a lake. And leaving the crowd, they took, with them, took him with them on the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And then I love this. And then they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I mean, it's one thing to do something that we could probably attribute, say, Oh, well, modern medicine fixed that, but calming the sea down? And the second one, comes from John chapter 11, verses, starting in verse 17. It says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus, a friend of his, had been dead in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, well, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Jump down a few verses. Some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, and always the pragmatist, always thinking these things through, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died 
came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Jesus' life, just those two examples, calming the sea, raising someone from the dead, those don't just happen. And that's not just like the privilege of some sort of witch doctor or magic person. No. Those things can only be done by God. And Jesus is mighty God by how he lived. But Jesus did amazing things that showed that he was God. But he did not follow the bad advice that is often misattributed to Francis of Assisi, which is often said, preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. Rather, Jesus believed that it was always necessary to preach the gospel in both word and deed. So did Paul, so did Peter, so did John, so did the rest of the apostles, and on and on and on throughout the history of the church. You see, some people say that the claim that Jesus, the claim that the church has that Jesus claimed to be God was made up by the church later on. They say he didn't actually say that. People just took what he said wrongly. And we should at this point echo Jesus' own words to the Jews. He said it again and again. Have you not read? Open your Bible. Open this book. And if you have read and you're still saying this, you're saying it because you don't want to believe the truth. It's that plain and it's that simple. I mean, here's the truth. Did Jesus say he was God? Over and over and over again. I have a list of at least 15 different references that I'm not going to read all of them, but I'll read a couple. He was having an argument one time with the Pharisees, and this is in John chapter 8. He's always having an argument with the Pharisees. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you neither know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would also know my father also. And then jump down a few verses to verse 58. And he said, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And to the Jews, that was using the most holy name of God. And that was blasphemy. If it wasn't true. And then John chapter 10. I and the Father are one. John chapter, let's see. John chapter 17, when he was praying for his disciples, for us. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they also may be in us, so the world may believe that you sent me. And then at the end of this book, Revelation, chapter 1, verse 8, 
Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. Did Jesus say he was God? Yes. Yes, he did. Even when he was questioned, he said, I am. C.S. Lewis puts forward this interesting trilemma, and maybe you've heard of it in his book, Mere Christianity. And it seems to capture this example. And he says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. A little later he says, Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Jesus showed his li- in his life and in his words that he was the promised mighty God. But then something very ungodlike happened, didn't it? The same scriptures that record him doing the things that only God can do and saying the things that only God can say record him suffering. God suffering? And dying. God dying? The way no God in our minds should ever do. Yet that is the display of how Jesus is still mighty God. Jesus is mighty God by how he suffered and died. Because when it comes to the idea of God and our, our imagination of God, it seems that virtually every human being imagines that a being, imagines a being that is strong, capable, mighty. And you just look across the world's religions. Islam's Allah. Nietzsche's Ubermensch. The, even the Yahweh of Judaism, who was revealed in Christ. Or even Norse or Greek gods of mythology or the pantheon of Hindu gods and goddesses. Or even the panentheisms, which says God is in you, therefore you are mighty. And for the Christian, the God of the Bible is mighty. But what many of the Jews of Jesus' day and in Isaiah's day missed, and we can miss today if we demand that God meet our expectations, is perhaps the thing that truly makes the God of the Bible mighty. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our, our ways, he says in Scripture. He accomplishes his plan through suffering and something that looks anything but mighty. He comes down as a baby born into frail humanity 
he suffers and he dies. And we talked about this last week, that this foolishness of God becomes a stumbling block for a lot of people. How can a powerful God do this? Why would he do this? How is the criminal's death on a cross from a pagan nation mighty? Well, thankfully we're not alone in this this sentiment. Even his own disciples at the time struggled with it. Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 23. Jesus, they're walking along the road and Jesus asks them, Who do the people say the Son of Man is? Which is a title, by the way, from Daniel about of God, the Messiah. And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? That is the most important question he can ask you. And that's the most important question that you have to ask yourself. Who do you say that Jesus is? And Simon Peter replied, verse 16, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. He wanted them to pay attention, to get it right, to seek God. And Peter, by God's grace, gets his Messiah right. He confesses that he confesses rightly, and Jesus proclaims his awesome blessing over him. And then Jesus starts talking about his most important work as the Messiah. And how do you think Mr. Blessed Peter responds? Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. What? Suffer? Be be killed? Messiah is supposed to be mighty God, everlasting Father. Isn't one of the things that makes the Almighty God the fact that he can't be killed? Then the scripture goes on, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Just a tip. Bad idea to rebuke God. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that the fallen sinner does not think the same way as the holy God. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So how is this mighty? The humiliation of the Son of God, the treatment of God as a criminal worthy of death because he doesn't just talk about it, he goes to a Roman cross and is crucified. 
around the cross, he is mocked because of this. He saved others. He can't save himself. Why did they miss it? Why do we miss it? Or how can we miss it that Jesus in his suffering and his death is mighty God? We talked a little bit about this in Sunday school this morning, but it's because we don't know our need. And because we don't know our need for this kind of God, a God who is so mighty to save that he himself comes and does it for us, that apart from him revealing it to us in his word, we don't get it. Romans 5, verse 6 through 11. How is Jesus mighty God? For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been saved, or we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That's what his suffering and death did. He came and actually won by dying. No one expected that. No one saw that coming, even though they should have. That's how he changes us. Mighty God wasn't born in a manger just to be born in a manger. He was born that he might be the sacrifice that would cover an eternal penalty for our sin. And his sacrifice... If he's God, pure, holy, perfect God, and he sacrifices himself for sinners whose payment is that they must have a perfect sacrifice, is the sacrifice sufficient? Is the sacrifice sufficient, church? Yes. And that's why he didn't stay dead. Jesus is mighty God because of how he rose and how he will return. Because God, if he's God, doesn't stay dead for very long. See, Romans even said, For while we were, if we were enemies, we were reconciled to, the, to God by the death of his Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Paul writes, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3-4, through 4, one of the most clear, concise descriptions of the gospel. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So what does it mean, in accordance with the Scriptures? Well, you see, in Paul's day, he didn't have revelation, he didn't have he was he was writing 1 Corinthians we have it already completed 
John hadn't written his letters. Peter hadn't written his letters. The Gospels accounts were still coming together because the apostles were writing them. So what does he mean, scriptures? He means the rest of this book that, unfortunately, many of us in the, who call ourselves Christians don't read very often. It's this, basically two-thirds of this book. The Messiah was supposed to die, according to the Old Testament. The Messiah was supposed to rise, according to the Old Testament. I'm just going to read one. And it, you probably are familiar with it. Isaiah chapter 53. This was not supposed to be a surprise. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Isaiah 53, verse 1. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And this is considered a servant song about God's Messiah. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I'll jump down just a little bit. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he, that Messiah, shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Did you notice that? It's talking about his death, but there's also, it also says that there is after this death, he shall see and be satisfied. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. And even though he bears the sin of many, he makes intercession, makes intercession for the transgressors. This is not a God who stays dead. This is a God whose sacrifice is sufficient. And he's a God who we can trust and we can hope in and who can change our lives if we trust him. If we take our squirming that he is mighty God to him and say, Lord, help. I can't understand this apart from you. 
we will reject it apart from his work. But he said three words, well, at least three in the English language, while he was on the cross, didn't he? He breathed his last and he said, It is finished. What he came to do is done. The payment for sins has already been paid. God's wrath has been satisfied for those who believe this, who trust this. So what are we to do with this? Well, Jesus put it pretty, pretty clearly. He said, told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Our God is mighty God. Jesus is mighty God by how he rose and that we have life in him and now we can expect him to return. Because let's, let's, let's look at this. If he says he's going to suffer and die, and he suffers and dies, and if he says before he suffers and dies that he's going to rise again, and he rises again, do you think he can be trusted when he says, I'm going to come back? Yes, absolutely, he can be trusted. That's why Christmas is so much more. So much more than what we let it be. Let's trust him. Let us do as the scripture says. Behold your God. Both on a cross for your sake and out of the tomb to have life with you forever. He is mighty God. And I know we covered so, so little of what that means this morning. This whole book is full of the mightiness of God. Let's trust him. Let's listen to him. Let's heed him. I know that he has, be he has been from eternity past. He is and he will be mighty. I know that he is mighty for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you're mighty. We are so weak. Lord, it is hard to admit that. We have so many struggles and so many things that throw us off course, so many things that shake us. And we can easily just slide into the rut of letting Christmas be without you. Letting our lives be without you. Lord, forgive us. Restore our souls in the mindiness of God. And please, restore those and make new those who do not yet believe. May they see and believe, Lord. 
Thank you that you're mighty God and that you can do this. We pray these things in Christ's name.